Now, what's suggested to me this morning as I came in that perhaps I might like to sit there on the chair, a bit like the Tales of the Unexpected, or uh, perhaps like uh, Ronnie Corbett, I'm not quite sure. But uh, decided it might be better here for the live stream. But um, young children learning about amazing agents of God, ordinary people who, because they offered themselves to God, he could use them to achieve amazing things. Actually, I think of Paul sometimes, he was accused of a, a double agent, wasn't he? You know, sometimes they, the, his accusers thought he was doing one thing, he was doing another. And uh, yeah, it's exciting when you think about the Bible in that sort of way. Over the next four weeks, not this week, but over the next four weeks, during our all age services, we're going to be looking at another four agents of God. Uh, or characters, however we like to think of them. Today's not part of that series. Today we're moving on in James. Now when I introduced the series of James at Thyme Road, probably about two, two and a half months ago now, I said that James is the half-brother of Jesus and he wasn't a believer initially. I don't think it would have been particularly easy for perhaps uh, a younger brother growing up and then coming to a place where he could worship and follow his older brother. It's a strange sort of thought, isn't it? We don't know how James came to know Jesus in that sense, as his Lord and Saviour. We know in the Gospels it says that Jesus' family thought that he was out of his mind and that even his brothers didn't believe him. So something changed, whether that was a, a gradual thing or whether it was a bit like Paul on the road to Damascus. We don't know. But whenever and wherever that was, by the time he wrote his letter, James was the leader of the Jerusalem church. God, if you like, had called him to be an agent and had given him a clear mission and a purpose to lead the early church. So throughout his letter, James challenges us. There's a lot of challenges there about our attitudes and our actions, how our responses to times of trial and temptation the way we speak and the way we speak the way we speak to and about others. Our attitude to wealth and to the rich, our treatment of the poor and the marginalised, our world view and values, and the state of our hearts before God. All that in just a few chapters. And as I said in my introduction at Thyme Road, I remember saying that the first chapter of James is like the headlines of what's coming in the following chapters. A bit like you know, news at 10, they tell you what's coming up uh, in the news. And as we go through that letter, I said some of those challenges, some of those passages are going to be a challenge to us as we reach them. And believe it or not, I picked out the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 as challenging sermons when we got there. And little did I know that today I would be preaching that sermon. Uh, but there you are. I'm sure God's got a sense of humour. So, this morning... The, um, the, the message is really in two halves. Now, the first one is about boasting, about over-planning or being too self-assured. And the second gives warning to the rich or to the rich oppressors. Now, until this point in his letter, James introduced each little part of his letter. As he changed subjects, he always wrote, brothers or my brothers or dear brothers. But our passages today start more harshly, much more abrupt. Now listen, you who say, is how they start. The tone changes. He's talking 
to a smaller group who give him concern that they're falling away. But we'd all do well to listen to. So what's troubling James and, what's, and who's he talking to? James 4, the end of James 4, picking it up at verse 13. In the NIV, it's titled, Boasting About Tomorrow. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. James is pretty clear about what he thinks. He won't ask, uh, uh, sorry, I won't ask for a show of hands, but who amongst us wants a successful future? Whether that future is a long one or a short one, I guess most of us would say that we want to make a success of our lives. Although perhaps we might all have different ideas about what that would look like. So I did a a search online, as, as one does nowadays, how to plan a successful future. And WikiHow provides a way, as Wiki often does. That's Wiki, not Vicky, that's WikiHow. So go into your bedroom and close the door. Go through your life thoroughly. What is your gift? What do you want to be in the future? It goes on to say, what is your passion? Something you would love to do even if you weren't paid to do it. Write it down. Plan a route to get there. What will it take to reach your dream? Put a piece of paper where you can see it and remind yourself of your goals. Work your plan. Put it into action. Make it happen. Dismiss negativity and begin to speak your future in the present. Well, it's a plan. But from a Christian perspective... There's a problem. God isn't in it. And actually, Wiki's eight points aren't so different to what James is saying in these verses. In verse 13, he gives an example of someone who's followed the WikiHow plan for being successful. He says, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend the day there, carry on business and make money. Perhaps without realising it, they followed the WikiHow way. They've thought about what success to them looks like. They've planned out the route to get there. They're speaking their future into the present. So they spent some time considering their plans, thinking them through, mapping them out. But they haven't considered what the Lord would have them do. And James goes on to tell them why that's foolish. In verse 14, he says, why? You do not even know what's going to happen tomorrow. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Those who plan without seeking the Lord's plans for them are foolish because our lives are completely in his hands. 
And from our standpoint, life is uncertain. Who knows? God is the master of our futures, the captain of our souls, whether or not we choose to believe him. There's so many scriptures that make that clear. There are too many, I couldn't possibly list them all, but a couple of proverbs, and I use this first one on the notice sheet as a verse. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what tomorrow may bring. We're not robots. God gives us free will. We have to make decisions, and we still need to plan. Just because we don't know the future doesn't mean that we should live life without a thought to tomorrow or without planning or saving. But we need to keep our focus on the Lord as we make those plans. Now that doesn't mean we make a plan and ask God to bless it. Or simply to add on the end of a sentence or prayer, if it is the Lord's will. As if that's our way of making sure God's involved. We need to seek God's wisdom, his guidance, allowing him to shape and lead us. God needs to be in our plans from conception to working them out, delivering them to completing them, not as an appendix that can be easily removed if it's causing us aggravation. Our life decisions should be based on what God has revealed to us of his heart and his values, because if they're not, that's a presumption, not a plan. I was thinking about planning and the future. I was reminded of our church profile and the process we've been going through as we look to appoint a new ministry team. I just want to reassure you, yes, we prayed. We prayed much that God would guide us. We had great support from Graham Ross when he started the process. And now, as we talk with applicants, we've got Adrian's support. Both great men of God. Or going back to HBC talk, agents who God has appointed and is, asked and is using to help us. The profile is useful. We have a plan, if you like, but it's only a starting point. We're looking for the persons who God is appointing, who have a mission here and is going to lead us as part of God's plan for his church. We need to be flexible and listening to God all the way through. So we start with that profile, we meet them, you meet them, and we seek God uh, in making those appointments. Thank you for continuing to join with us in prayer, that God will guide us as we journey together. Now, time doesn't allow me to give too many illustrations of how frail the plans of men can be. But hopefully you remember the story Jesus told of the rich young ruler who built up his barns and stored his crops so that he could take life easy. A bit like the eat, drink and be merry plan. But you know how that finishes for tomorrow we die. And that's exactly what Jesus said about the rich young ruler as he warned his listeners. And there's the Apostle Paul, who knew his calling as an apostle, but he remained flexible in his plans as he served God. Sometimes planning to do one thing, but then God directed another. Nehemiah is a great example of a man who sought God for a plan. When he heard about the distress of his people and their needs, he was greatly moved, but not immediately into action. Rather to prayer, seeking God and asking how he could be a part of the solution. 
And neither Paul or Nehemiah had it easy. There were times when they were frustrated, when they had to be flexible in their understanding of God's plans and when they faced persecution. Sometimes they pushed the door and it opened. Sometimes it stayed firmly closed. Perhaps they got confused at times, but they never turned away from God. Of course, it can also be dangerous when you know God's plans and turn away from them. Remember Jonah. Remember James, he started this section with an abrupt, now listen, you who say. And now he's finishing it with a warning. Anyone then who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. We're all very familiar with the principle that if you do something you shouldn't, then that's a sin. But James is making it just as clear that if we don't do something we should, then that's also a sin. Sometimes referred to the sin of omission. Not doing the right thing is as bad as doing the wrong thing. And James reminds us that not asking God to guide us, not asking God to reveal his plan for us and going our own way is effectively turning our back on God. So I'll finish this this first section with a couple of very familiar verses from the Psalms. Verses we often quote when we're looking for comfort, but perhaps not as much as we should do when we're making plans. It's Psalm 139. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God has an individual plan and purpose for each of us and it's unique to each one. He's got a plan for you, for me. I wonder, have you ever looked at someone and thought, I wish I was like him or her? Why would you want to be a mere copy of someone else when God has made you unique and has a plan for you? The next verse in Psalm 139 says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O Lord. Are they? If they are, then his thoughts must be the starting place for our plans. And then James moves on into the next few verses, which are titled, Warning to Rich Oppressors. And I just wonder whether verse 17 of chapter 4 is a linking verse. Anyone then who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Of course, there were no chapters and verses in those days. It would have just rolled straight on. And then he continues, Now listen, you rich people. It's another one of those targeted messages, but one that we should listen to. Now listen to you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. He's not holding back, is he? 
He's not mincing his words, he's going straight in there. He's not dancing around the issues at all. Now, most commentators think this passage is mainly addressed to those who use their money to oppress others and to indulge themselves. Possibly, though, also to the religious leaders who use their positions to oppress the Jewish people. But that doesn't let us off the hook. Oh, no. I'm sure you know the saying, money talks. Sometimes money makes things happen quicker or more easily than words alone. When someone puts down their money or writes a cheque, things happen. They're taken seriously or they simply get their own way. You know that when old banknotes are destroyed, they go into the furnace. Maybe it's not quite the same now with plastic ones, I'm not sure how they deal with those, but the story is told of a, a £50 note and a £1 note that found themselves together on the conveyor belt to the furnace. And you can tell it's old because £1 notes stopped. I've got a couple of younger people looking blank there. Yeah. They stopped in 1988. Uh, yeah, they were withdrawn in 88. Now, the £50 note reminisces about his experiences. I've had a great life, he said. I've been to expensive hotels, the finest restaurants, shows in the West End, and even been on a cruise to the Caribbean. Wow, said the pound note. You've had an amazing life. So tell me, said the 50, what about you? Well, said the pound note, I've been to the Methodist Church, the Baptist Church, the Anglican Church. (laughs) The 50 interrupted. What's a church? Money can sometimes get in the way of our relationship with God. Now, we know that money in itself isn't evil. It's the love of money that's the problem. We all need money to live, even ministers. Missionaries need money to be able to spread the message of hope. Churches need money to be able to share the gospel. But things go wrong when money becomes the aim, when it becomes the reason for living, when money is hoarded and people do all they can to gain more. They walk over people. They don't care what happens to others as long as their bank balance is growing. In these verses, James is saying that money talks, but in a different sense. It speaks against those motives. It speaks against those whose motives are driven by wanting more, who would do whatever they can to get it. Their possessions are crying out against them. But just as their possessions will rot and disappear, so will they. As they accumulate more and more, they fail to recognise that God gave them their wealth for a reason. James goes on to attack the rich for not paying proper wages, for exploiting the labourers. God hears the cries of the oppressed. James' letter was written when there, were, when there was a famine and a lot of the wealthy landowners were claiming back land loaned to people who now couldn't pay their rent. Way back in Deuteronomy, God made it clear when he gave the law that fair wages to be paid to all workers. It's clear that these rich landowners weren't fulfilling even the basic requirements of the law. In the early church, we'll remember this, this very early days of the early church, many were coming to faith, the rich and the poor, the landowners and the labourers. Attitudes to one another had to change. Now, perhaps in today's culture, that might seem a bit alien. 
Or what about us turning a blind eye to those in other countries who work for less than a wage that would allow them to feed their families and have access to adequate facilities? I can't help coming back to that verse at the end of chapter 4. Anyone who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. I wonder, have you ever thought what, it, what you could do with a million pounds, what it would be like? How much good you could do, of course, but on the other hand, how much danger it might put you in if it got a hold of you. I heard a story of a man lying on grass and looking up to the sky. As he looked around, he was amazed at God's creation and he started to talk to God. God, how long is a million years to you? God replied, a million years is like a minute. Then the man asked, what's a million pounds to you? God replied, it's like a penny. The man thought for a while. God, can I have a penny? God replied, in a minute. (laughs) God knows best. Let's get a perspective. Let's make sure that however much we have, how little or how large an amount is used for God. Remember the widow's might and then balance that against the behaviour of Ananias and Sapphira. What matters is not what we have, but what we do with what we have. The way in which we hold it and treat it, and whether or not it has more of a grip on us than we have on it. I mentioned earlier that it was likely James was also addressing the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin and the high priest. They'd become corrupt and were taking advantage of the sacrificial system to make themselves rich. It wasn't unusual for the priest to invent some kind of a problem with a lamb that was brought for inspection before sacrifice. They'd then offer to buy the substandard animal, or a lamb, uh, at a ridiculously small sum of money and tell them they needed to buy one that was fit for sacrifice. Later they'd sell the same lamb they judged unfit to the next Jew who needed a sacrificial lamb. It was a racket, it was wicked, and God was not pleased. Just eight years after James wrote this letter, there was the Jewish revolt, and the Jewish aristocracy was wiped out. God won't be mocked. Money might talk, but God has the final word. It's so important for us to keep ourselves free from the love of money. What begins as working hard to earn a living can so easily turn into taking shortcuts and taking on the culture of the world around us. Regardless of the path a person takes, if greed is leading the way, it's the start of a downward spiral. We do whatever we have to do to get whatever it is that we want. And in our minds, we justify those actions. And then even when we get that, we're not satisfied. And so greed comes in, or sin And it will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you there longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. God's got a better plan. There's no mention of repentance in this passage, but that's God's plan. Turn away from sin and learn to live life with him. So where does that leave us? Well we might easily excuse ourselves from today's message. 
After all, we are miserly, stingy, self-indulgent or greedy enough to lie, cheat, steal or kill for money. Are we? We aren't the rich who oppress the poor. Are we? We just work hard to make ends meet and are content with what we have, recognising that everything we have is from the Lord. But what if our money could talk? What would it say about us? What would it reveal? What would it reveal things that we wouldn't want others to know about us? Would it show a greater attachment to the things of this world than to the things that last forever? If every penny, that, oh, sorry, every pound that we've ever spent could tell on us, what would it say? If that thought makes you feel a little nervous, as it does me, maybe the Lord is speaking and perhaps he's saying, we need to talk. Let's do life God's way and he will bless you for it. And remember that he has promised, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That's what makes life good without having to always have more. I wouldn't normally finish with an illustration. But as I was thinking about how to bring together the two passages, which seem, in a sense, quite separate, I had a picture. Now, this doesn't quite fit with the HBC theme, I know. It's a Russian doll. But I had that picture of a Russian doll. What's that got to do with anything? Well, as you open each part of that doll... As you know, there's another one inside. And another one. And another one. And another one. Whether we're talking about boasting, making plans and being self-sufficient, or about money and being greedy and self-indulgent, we can take a warning from that. Don't get too full of yourself. But let God shape you and fill you. Just a few verses from earlier in James, chapter 4. And it ties up as well with the verse that Nigel started with, which we didn't know. God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Come near to God, he will come near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. As we sing this next song before sharing communion together. Perhaps reflect on the words in the light of this passage that we just looked at from James. Thank you, Nigel.